Welcome to the Pac-12 Hotline podcast, everyone. And we are joined by the man who has scored more points than anyone in Pac-12 history and I would argue has provided more honest commentary uh, than anyone in Pac-12 history, Don McLean. <laughs> Thanks very much, Don. Yeah, John, I've never been introed that way, so I appreciate that. I don't know if that's good or bad. No, it's good. It, it, believe me, it's good. I, I always appreciate that about you. You call it like you see it. And uh, and thanks for, uh, I know it's a busy week, squeezing me in. This is, our, I think, our third year of doing a podcast together yeah. at this point where we can you know, make the pivot from the regular season to the conference tournament and the NCAAs. First things first, your lasting takeaway – from what you've seen over the last four months from the Pac-12? Uh, I think just the, the complete spin around from last year. You know, for us in, in doing what we do and talking about games and being in the studio and have to really talk about all this stuff. Last year, there wasn't a lot to talk about because what what the damage had been done in November and December. So once we got to conference, there wasn't many great storylines because you, you couldn't help yourself if you needed help to get in the NCAA tournament and some teams had played their, their themselves out already. Uh, but this year it's been great because there's so many teams that were that did well in November and December, and so we knew it was setting up for a great conference race. We didn't know if any teams would separate themselves, and frankly, no one did. I mean, it was a great race all the way till the end. Oregon ended up winning it outright, but not by much. They had to win their last game. And so it was a great ride through the conference. I think some surprises to the upside. Um, I think some some surprises to the downside as well, but overall, just a great conference season. I know we talked about this last year. One thing that struck me is, uh, and it was visible for several teams, is the impact of quality coaching. And I think the the major manifestation of that was that the bottom of the conference was better, right? Cal and Washington State were competitive from start to finish, and that helped everyone else. Hundred percent, and you know the the job that all three of those guys did. And congrats to Mick Cronin for winning Coach of the Year. But the fact that, and I told people this because I was in Corvallis all weekend for OSU, Stanford, and Cal. You know, if you had told me before the year that Cal wasn't going to win a conference game, I would have said, "Yeah, I could see that." <laughs> and the fact that, in the fact that they won as many games as they did, Washington State, same thing. And then you know the UCLA thing became a national story with their with their turnaround and their seven game winning streak uh, here at the end. But you have to have that as a conference. If you're talking about getting five, six, seven teams in the NCAA tournament, you can't have three or four at the bottom that are just, just landmines waiting to be stepped on. Um, And that was the difference this year. And, you know, from a selfish standpoint as a broadcaster and in doing a, a decent amount of Cal games and Washington state games and UCLA games, like, what a great story to walk into their arena or even when they're on the road and, and it not be about that, that it be about these coaches look like they're going to be here for a long time, that immediate. Because a lot of times, John, you and I have talked about this, where you're like, well, I'll just give them another year. Oh, yeah, year three is when we'll, we'll really know. Well, you kind of know that these three guys are, are going to be able to do the job just based on what they did here in their first year. No doubt, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your alma mater real quick. How would you, from what you've seen from Cronin, you know, the last five months here, and then kind of playing out in your head the kind of kids that he will 
be able to recruit at UCLA, the you know the the makeup of the kids that he's going to need to recruit. How do you kind of see it unfolding in the next three to five years? Well, let, let's go back to before the season started, and I went to practice, and you know I had met met a, Mick a couple times just through various things over the years, but didn't really know him, and and so I went to practice and was blown away first of all at how good the practice was, um, the efficiency of it, how much he got done. Um, and just the energy from his coaching staff and him. And, and so, and that's when I started saying, you know, when we got to the media poll on media day and, and they were picked eighth, I said, you know, they're not going to finish eighth. I don't know who they're going to finish ahead of, but they're not finishing eighth. I could just tell that the way he was doing things, that this was going to be a turnaround. Well, I didn't look so smart in November and December, but it finally clicked. And in the hard part, and I said this all year, John, is that you had Steve Alford, who was offensive-minded. It was an offensive approach. Defense was secondary. And some of those players had been in the program for a few years, and that was their way of doing things. And here comes Mick Cronin with the complete opposite of that, that it's a defensive-minded approach. We spend a lot of time on defense. Yes, we're going to work on our offense, but we have to get our defense right. And these players, I think it really just threw them for a loop, and they didn't get it, and they didn't understand it. But Mick kept with it, didn't let, let him off the hook. He uses the word accountability a lot. And it finally got through to these players. And I think once they started winning, it just kind of snowballed. And so to your question, I think recruits are looking at UCLA saying, man, that looks fun. The building was rocking. I did that Arizona State game. I hadn't heard the building that loud in a, in, in a while. And so if he can get the fan base back and he can get people excited about it, that helps in recruiting, and I think if you're winning, and, and, they're, and they've won way more this year than people thought they were going to, and so if you, if you put those ingredients into it, I think he's going to recruit. Now, is he going to recruit McDonald's All-Americans at every position? I don't think you can do that anymore. I think there's examples across the country, Duke being one of them, that if you get that many high-level players, I don't think it works you know, night in and night out. But I do think he's going to have the ability to recruit who he wants um, that are that high level and then incorporate this philosophy and this approach he has. I think he's going to win. I mean, he's won way, like I said, he's won way more already in year one. So two years from now, why wouldn't he be winning way more than we would think in year three? You think he'll be under pressure from the L.A. basketball community to recruit you know, every five-star that comes along from, you know, Sherman Oaks, Notre Dame, or Modern Day, or Poly? Yeah, I think every coach is, John, honestly, that everybody looks at recruiting classes, and it's a slippery slope. I mean, I did the I did the USC Villanova exhibition in October, and I spent like 45 minutes with Jay Wright, and everybody talks about the Villanova way. And what's interesting about their story and Jay Wright's story at Villanova is they had some early success. So that got him in the living rooms of all these McDonald's kids. And he told me that they weren't ready for that. And if you remember, they kind of had some down years there yep. because he was recruiting high-level players, and they weren't winning. They just weren't. Guys were transferring. And so they went back to recruiting the players that they thought would fit their system and would want to do things the way they wanted to do it. And it turns out these guys bought in, and they started winning again. And now that he's won a couple national championships here recently, he feels like the program is ready to embrace these McDonald's kids again and get whatever player they want because they built this culture 
that, and they tell guys, he told me, he tells recruits flat out, are you going to be willing to do it our way? Or are you just here for six months to get to the NBA? And if they say, you know what, I'm just here to get to the NBA, then they just mutually part ways in the recruiting process. And to me, it was a fascinating conversation because any coach would want to have the best players, right? But sometimes having the best players doesn't always work if they're not willing to do what you want to do. So I think that's the, that's the job for Mick Cronin is to get as high level of players he can get, but also ones that want to want to buy into his system. Well, and it's also interesting if you look at the Pac-12. You know, this season the teams that finished on top were based on veterans. Yeah, yeah, and that and you know that's a hard one too because. You can't just say, all right, I'm recruiting all three-star guys because I want senior-laden rosters every year because then your talent level may not be high enough to compete. You know, what Dana's done is, is you know, kind of get into every market, meaning the grad transfer market, the JUCO market, the high-level high school market. And I think he's been able to mix that together for some success. But I think the key is for Oregon, they always seem to have a few veteran players at the top that can show the way to the younger guys or the newer guys. Yeah. And so that's really hard to manipulate roster construction. You know, is it a perfect science? It's not, or else everybody would just do it the same way. So I think the real answer is I need to, I need to have a balanced roster of guys. I know that are going to be here for four years. I need to have some high level guys that might only be here for a year or two. And then you sprinkle in now with the portal, either the transfer portal or the grad transfer portal and hopefully you come up with a mix that works. If you could put on your your offensive hat here for a sec, because I know last year one of the things that you mentioned was Oh John, I, I John, just not to interrupt you, but I don't have a defensive okay. hat, just so you know. <laughs> fair, fair enough. <laughs> you know, I, I know that last year you one of the things that, that really stuck with you last year was you didn't think that the quality of offense, especially the quality of shooting in the conference, was good enough. Do you, have you seen an improvement there? I think it's a case-by-case basis, you know, but doing doing our podcast this morning, we kind of ran through the bracket and the teams, and there still are some teams that, that you, you point to that area. Like, if Stanford doesn't make shots, they're, they don't win. If Arizona State doesn't make shots, they don't win. If Oregon State doesn't make shots, and the coaches tell me this. But you look at the box scores, you look at the numbers, and, and it backs it up. So I don't think it's as widespread as it was last year in terms of offenses being anemic. I think more so this year it's about our team's good enough from the three-point line. And you wonder, and I haven't spent a whole lot of time looking into it, or even talking about it for that much, but the effect of the three-point line moving back this year, is that is that a reason why I feel like I'm talking more about our teams either making shots or missing shots, de- determining winning games, um, because the three-point line, line's farther away? Um, so I guess to answer the question, it's, it's not as much of a topic as it was last year, but in a case-by-case basis, it's still there. Do you, uh, do you have a handle, you think, on – what teams are best constructed to win either three or four games in Vegas? Because it's a different deal. Neutral court, more sterile environment, different shooting backgrounds. You got to generate your own energy. What What are your uh, What's your your view of the tournament? Well, I, I think it it kind of goes back to the two co- topics we just covered, John. You know, experience being one of them, and then shooting. 
you know. Um, I think Oregon probably is the best setup, you know, with the, with a guy that can take over games and Pritchard, um, who has the experience of winning four last year in this tournament. Um, but there's some other teams that we never know once you get to the postseason because in everyone's mind they wipe the, the slate clean and it's like okay now it's win or go home and what is, how, what effect does that have on individuals and teams together? Like I look at a team like Stanford who has been so good defensively this year. But they also have multiple guys that can make threes. So you got you got Terry, you got Spencer Jones, you got De Silva, you got guys that can make Isaac White, you got guys that can make shots, and you just wonder if they bring the defense and two or three of those guys get hot from behind the line, could they roll through the tournament? I think they could because it's wide open. As as much as I think Oregon is the best team and getting Dante back for them, I think is a big deal. I don't think there's a huge amount of separation between Oregon and two through 12. I really don't. So to me, it's really about who's probably the best defensively and can bring that defense. But then, you know, some guys step up and make shots and get hot and uh, maybe that snowballs for them. You know, I agree with you about, about Stanford. And I think, you know, just in terms of being able to win more more than their seed would indicate. The other team I wonder about is Colorado, their state of mind, right? Losing a bunch of games here at the end. You see anybody besides Stanford that could kind of overplay their seed? I think Washington could for sure. Yeah. I mean, they went, they just went to Arizona and won both, and we've been kind of waiting on them. You never know what, what the impact is of losing a, a key guy midseason like they did in green and I think it's taken them some time to figure it out, and I think it's taken Jaden McDaniels most of the season to figure it out. But he seems like if he can play like he played last weekend, Arizona's going to have some problems on Wednesday um, like they did on Saturday. Um, but there's not many games, John, that I see that I would be surprised if the lower seed won or the higher seed, however you look at it, yeah. um, just because of how the conference season has gone. I mean, if you think about it, Oregon won the conference outright, and they were 13-5. and five. Yeah, So true. that just talks about how even everything's been. You know, getting to Colorado, I, I don't know what's going on there, but, but for them to finish 10-8 and eight is shocking to me. Like, I wasn't sure if they could win the conference title regular season, but I certainly thought that they, there's, there's no doubt they'd have a bye on Wednesday in Vegas. And for them, like I said, to be 10-8 and eight in the sixth seed, is really surprising because of one of the areas I just talked about. They have all that experience back from last year. And so you would have thought that that would have carried them to more wins in the regular season. But as I said earlier, you never know. Now that if they're disappointed with their regular season, which I'm sure they are, you wipe the slate clean. Guys, let's go make up for it. Let's go win four in a row. Colorado did it in 2011, their first, their first uh, year in the Pac-12. And so maybe they can do it again. They're certainly good enough, but consistency has been a problem for them. One issue I definitely wanted to ask you about was officiating and not uh, not get into specific calls, specific games. You know, I think everyone watches and everyone can see that uh, the the officiating product is struggling. But I wonder how much of that do you think has to do with what the officials are being asked to do on a you know, a minute-to-minute basis when you add in freedom of movement, flopping, replay. What is your big-picture view of the state of officiating? The problem, John, is with the rules committee. 
The officials are just doing what they're supposed to be doing. They have given them way too much. And here's what I would say. Why does there have to be rules changes and add-on things every time they meet? What about the rules committee meets, if it's this year or next year, whenever it is, and say, you know what, guys? We like the product. We don't need to add anything more. I just feel like they've given the rules committee too much responsibility and too much freedom to decide on all these things, and they put too much emphasis on it, almost like it's become too important. But you think about it, and it's like these guys don't want to be on the one rules committee that says, you know what, we're not changing anything, because then it looks like you didn't do your job. When if I was on the rules committee, let's say the next time, I would say that, and guess what? I'd be doing the best job by saying we're not changing anything because they look at the rules and they think about the game and you get all these perspectives from different conferences, high, you know, low major, high major, mid major, and everybody's got an opinion. So then you, you put all these thoughts into more rules and it just doesn't make any sense. So the officials now are thinking about way too many things and it's a human element thing. Like you, it, the game's not like it's a slow game. So the game's going, you got to think about all these things to make a call and so I have a feeling these officials, because they're so overwhelmed in their minds when they go to a game, they just start calling, they just start calling everything because all these rules pop into their mind. And it's just not fair to them to give them this many things. And what's interesting is I think everybody's been on board since like November 15th that the flopping rule is the dumbest rule I've ever heard. And I knew it was when they announced it. And sure enough, it kind of turns out that it is. And, and I made this point on Thursday in the Stanford OSU game. So what's happening now is, let's say we're in a half-court set, and a guy sets a screen, and I'm the defender guarding the ball. And I'd have to go back and look at, like, every play. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it 90, 90 to 95% of the time. If I'm the defender and I run into the screen and fall down, I'm getting the call. So what if the guy is set, and you really watch the play, and the guy falls down? I haven't seen one flop called on that play yet. And so I don't know if the officials got together and said, you know what, guys, this flopping call is stupid because I haven't seen one. I don't know. In the last, I haven't seen a flopping call in the last 20 games I've done. So what's that like five weeks, probably six weeks. And, and so I guess to wrap it all up, John, I just feel like the rules committee needs to settle down and just look at it with a common sense perspective what all's in there already, what they've added in the last five to 10 years, and just say, do we need to add more stuff for our officials to be accountable for? My answer would be no. So your, your approach is, is less is more. Do, do, is it possible that a fourth official would help because the other three would feel less compelled to have to blow their whistle? No. Here's what I would – and here's the thing. With all this emphasis on the rules and the game and we need to do this, they've put too much importance on it. Like, these, I've gotten to know a lot of these officials. They're good dudes. They like what they do. They try as hard as they can, right? But they've become too important to the game. Like, it's a game of basketball played between two teams. The officials are there to make sure it's being played fairly. If there's a foul, you call it. If there's this – so that the game is being decided and the players are the emphasis. There's so much talk about the officials and they have these seminars and they do this and they do that. And they do, they become too important to the game when to me, 
They should be stepping away from the game, being less important, and I think the product would look a hundred times better. Give them less of a rule book to deal with, and then and then maybe they don't feel like we have this importance to to make sure everything is, is exactly correct. And that's that's what I see is that with all the stuff that we've done, or not we, but like the conferences have done and the NCAA, like let's let's look at it like less is more. And and let's let the players be the focus of all this in the teams and the coaches. So before before I let you go here, a couple of quick hitters. Uh, your do you have a pick for for Las Vegas? Who last team standing? I have to say Oregon just because of Pritchard, John. He's been so good this year. And how many times have they been down or they they've needed a play or they needed a game winner and he's delivered like every time. It's one thing to shoot the shot and and you know because you're that guy and. You know, you have the confidence to do it, but his seemingly goes in every time. Um, and so it's hard not to pick Oregon with Pritchard. You know, he's in the conversation for National Player of the Year. Um, but again, going back to where we first started, not surprised really if anybody wins this thing because that's the way it's been this year in the conference. Yep. I, I think Pritchard's had the best season of any player in the conference, at least since the it expanded to 12 and maybe going back even further. Just when you look at everything he has done from back, going back to, what are they, uh, the Bahamas, you know, with the battle for Atlantis, he has been fantastic for four straight months. He has. The only thing I think you would say is, is that, and, and they've missed some players here throughout, but, the 13 and five record, I think you would have thought would have been a little bit better, but yeah. I'm not going to ding him for that because of because of all the other stuff he's done. But yeah, I agree. I haven't. I, I can't remember an individual having this good of a year because think about it. Think about the year Remy Martin's had, and to me, it's not even a debate who the player of the year was. Yeah. You know, and Remy Martin had a fantastic year for Arizona State. That's a great way to put it. Do you think, is Oregon in your mind, and I know matchups mean so much in the NCAAs, but do you think Oregon is best equipped uh, to make a deep run? Or who may, who should we look for in terms of maybe winning two or three games? In Vegas or in the NCAA tournament? In the NCAAs. I think Oregon's a candidate. You know who I think is a dark horse that nobody's talking about is USC. I think they got a couple seniors that are motivated. We had Matthews on our podcast last week. He talked about that. They got good young bigs in Okongwu and Mobley. Um, they have some depth. Like USC is a team that I wouldn't be surprised if, if they got to the championship in Vegas at least. And I wouldn't be surprised if they got to the Sweet 16 at least. Well, that's a good call. You're right. I had not thought about them. And what do you think about Arizona? I mean, should we – you think it's going to click and that those freshmen are going to, you know, basically lock in? Or is this kind of going to end like it has been plodding along for the last two months? You know, we're so involved in this, John, and I go team to team and, and place to place, and I see a lot. You go to shoot around. and. It, it just Arizona doesn't feel right. Something something's wrong. We're not in that locker room, and I'm not accusing them of having something wrong. Maybe it just there isn't as good as we all thought that they would be. But it just seems like at this point in the season, if you're going to say, "Oh, we're relying on three freshmen," that those three freshmen, as good as they've been individually, would be having more of an impact on team success and winning at this point. Um, so I don't know. But that being said. 
they are talented enough that they could say, you know what, we didn't have as good a regular season as we wanted. Let's turn it up in Vegas. And another team, John, that I wouldn't be surprised if they get to the championship game on Saturday or win the whole thing too. What do you have? What's your, uh, what's your schedule this week? My schedule is, is I do the first two games on Wednesday. So I have the 8-9 game and then the 5-12. And then Thursday I have the first two games again. Um, so I'll see Oregon on Thursday at noon. And then the 2-30 game would be USC. Um, and then I go home and then I come back and do studio on Saturday night with Yam and uh, Richard Jefferson. So looking forward to that for the championship game. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, you could get, uh, especially with Arizona-Washington and then USC against the winner of that game, that's yeah. two very intriguing games. Well, isn't that the whole point of, of this, John, as we wrap this thing up? Like, I don't think you're not going to get a good game no matter what game you're doing this week. No, that's a great, that's a great point. Great point. I can't thank you enough for, uh, for making a little bit of time here on such a busy week. Appreciate it, John. Anytime, man. All right, John. I'll see you in Vegas. Thanks a lot. Thanks, man. Okay, bye-bye.